0: Hi everyone, this is JJ Hornblass and welcome to The Roadmap from Auto Finance News since 1996, the nation's leading newsletter on automotive lending and leasing. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the weekly wrap for what's happening in auto finance. Uh, during the week of September 28th, 2020. Before beginning, I wanna thank Auto Finance News advertisers, Alpha, Auto IMS, DeFi and FIS for their continuing support. Thank you so much to them. And I am pleased to be joined by Joey Pizzolatto, the deputy editor of Auto Finance News, and Amanda Harris, an associate editor um, at Auto Finance News. Um, Welcome to both of you. It is Friday, October 2nd, 2020. This week, President Trump and his wife Melania tested positive for COVID-19. COVID cases in New York State, um, at what point uh, the nation's hotspot for the coronavirus, are surging again with some counties reporting that cases have topped the all important 3% of the local population for the first time since June. House Republicans uh, earlier this morning, meaning in the middle of the night, passed a $3 trillion tax cut and spending bill aimed at addressing the devastating economic fallout from the coronavirus outbreak that bill is unlikely to get through the Senate, let alone the White House. And today marks the 70th anniversary of the first Peanuts cartoon being published. I wonder what Charlie Brown would say about our current state of affairs. But to the auto finance industry's current state of affairs, um, there was uh, news this morning around uh, expectations for post-COVID demand uh, for both vehicles and auto finance. Um, so how was this pent-up demand uh, quantified, and, um, and what does it say about the current market?
1: Yeah, so um, we, you know, we listened to some of the CBA live conference um, this week, and one of the things they touched on was pent-up demand and kind of what we're seeing um, following the, you know, COVID spikes, which were back in, you know, the March-April timeframe, kind of everything was closed, so then soon after that in May and June was when that pent-up demand really spiked up. Um, so we're, we're starting now to see things kind of normalize a little bit. Um, we did see, you know, pretty high retail sales, about 1 million units in May and June, um, compared to about 686,000 units in March and 710,000 units in April. So that just kind of gives you some basis for how much it really jumped up um, in May and June. A lot of that was because, you know, people couldn't really buy cars uh, a couple months before that. So obviously the people who wanted cars, that demand, was gonna go up uh, during those time. Uh, now we're starting to see it kind of normalize um, and may even actually be below year over year um, where it was last year. Um, so I think now we're starting to get a clearer picture of you know, where that demand's actually gonna fall um, coming off of those spikes in, with the pandemic.
0: Joey how has uh, inventory issues played out in the marketplace how has that influenced um, car sales car financing I mean what are what's sort of the back story on the inventory side of things
2: so you know um, kind of on the heels of um, April and May um, April mostly um, when all the production closed uh, we ha- saw a uh, um, inventory squeeze in the new vehicle market, and that has sort of trickled down to the used vehicle market. Um, you see a lot more consumers turning to the used vehicle market who wanted to go and purchase a car during the pandemic. Um, but you know now, now the used use market is um, also kind of seeing um, a little bit of an inventory challenge. Um, I believe it's, it's segmented into certain regions. So um, for example, Maine is having a really hard time, obviously not a huge market for auto finance or the car market but um, I believe different areas of the country are experiencing it a little bit differently um, that coupled with um, you know rising uh, or three months of record used vehicle prices um, also could potentially be um, you know putting up a affordability concern so I think I think we were seeing inventory kind of slowly crawl its way back towards pre COVID normal, near normal levels. Um, but it's going slowly. So I think um, if you take kind of this pent up demand, normalizing and kind of leveling off coupled with um, inventory crawling again, back to where, where it used to be, I think, you know, we're, we're set to may, maybe level each other off and the, the lack of demand uh, consumer demand, especially in, in their, Ah, uh, forward-looking uh, intent to buy a vehicle um, could help solve that inventory issue, but it—you know—that being said, it won't help get us back to where the SAR was pre-COVID levels either.
0: Right. I don't. I don't any. I don't envy any OEM trying to um, forecast appropriate inventory levels going into 2021. Uh, very difficult. There was a note. Um, that there was a mention that I saw. Uh, regarding an expectation around delinquency rates, that we'll finally start to see industry-wide delinquency rates uh, uptick in September. Um, uh, it, you know, was there a sense for how significant that might be, or are we talking about uh, minor levels?
1: You know, I think it's. it's oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's you know still kind of to be seen on how much those will actually change. Um, But I think that sentiment's really that September will kind of give us um, a better idea because that's when, you know, all the programs have really ended, the health programs, we haven't had another round of stimulus. A lot of the unemployment benefits are starting to end. Uh, So kind of, you know, the same thing we've been talking about for a while with this is going to start really showing what's really going on um, because we don't have those customers kind of being propped up in ways that they wouldn't normally be. Uh, so now we're gonna start seeing the true delinquency rates coming out, um, but I, I don't know that we know exactly how much this will be yet because a lot of those programs are have just started to end and obviously we know the numbers um, will be coming out kind of like a month behind of, of where they'll actually be to when they're reported. Um, so I think we'll, we'll start seeing that in the next month or so.
2: Yeah, just to tack on what Amanda was saying, you know, the inclination is that, you know, when September's numbers are released sometime this month, um, you know, we will start seeing an uptick. Um, my inclination uh, personally is that, you know, I don't think it's, I think we're going to see an uptick, but I don't think it's going to be that high. You know, the subprime lenders that we've talked to, um, you know, in the past week, month, um, they're all kind of showing Strong portfolio performance in terms of you know um, loan modifications have leveled out um, back to near normals. In some cases, um, they're slightly under what they were in pre-COVID levels. I believe uh, Global Lending Services um, was seeing that last month, um, and other subprime lenders, uh, CPS, great portfolio performance for their two Q or Q two earnings. So I'm I'm not sure how high that they will will go. To, to be frank,
0: but Joey, how is that the case when you have unemployment? The unemployment rate that came out this morning was you know seven nine. How I, is it possible?
2: I I I know it's 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 hard to wrap your head around. And and one thing that you know um, I talked with um, the president of CIG Financial. They're a small uh, subprime lender out of uh, California. They're based in California, but they're in like eighteen states. And you know one thing. Um, one thing he pointed pointing to was you, sub the subprime consumer is a resilient consumer. And you know, you kind of hate to say it, but what one, one of the points that has been brought up multiple times um, to with executives that I've talked to is subprime consumers for the most part are constantly living in a quote unquote recessionary economy. So just by kind of the sheer nature of you know their I guess, economic position, if you wanted to call it that, you know, they're very, <clears throat> excuse me, they're, you know, they're, they're sort of equipped to, to kind of deal with, with this.
0: Right. But we're talking also about numbers beyond the subprime space. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think still you know, when you get a, an unemployment rate that goes, you know, what, 4x? Mm-hmm. What, it, you I, know?
2: It's really hard. Um, you know, you look at the credit crisis and you, you saw people, you know, they paid their car loans because they needed to get to work. Mm-hmm. You know, now everyone's working from home. Is that going to be the case again this, this, this time around? Um, we don't know. Um, the other thing, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, we had a lot of prime consumers, you know, you saw Cap One, Bank of America, they had, you know, maybe a 3% loan modification rate on books that are, you know, in the $50 billion mm-hmm. range. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the things, you know, we're seeing in the industry is a lot of people took those loan modifications just because it was convenient, not really out of necessity.
0: Um, and, you know, and so you would say that that freed up enough capital for them to sort of maintain, uh, remain to remain current on their loans going forward?
2: I mean, you, you would you would think or even if they didn't need it right maybe maybe they just took it because they could and they got two three extra months of no payment they'll just tack it on to the end of their loan Um, the
1: other thing to to think about with that Joey, just to add on to what you were saying is a lot of people are still making partial payments too so even though we have a lot of people in those programs, it doesn't necessarily mean they're all, you know, not making any kind of payment and we'll go into delinquency status from those programs in. So mm-hmm. I think that's also kind of going to prop up those rates. Um, and maybe they won't be quite as high yeah. because they were making at least some kind of payment. So then they won't no. necessarily go right into a delinquency.
0: Yeah. It would be it's interesting to get like, you know, see the numbers around partial payments and factor those up. It, it's hard to, to, to figure it's hard to see which program will have a greater adverse effect? Uh, partial payment or full loan modification full on the one hand, just like Joey said right full loan modification frees up your personal um, cash flow to uh, to allow for you to make payments going forward. partial payments doesn't as much right it partially does but it doesn't fully so it would be interesting to see, which of those programs actually yield the higher residual uh, delinquency or, or charge off rate um, going forward? But again, yet another data point that um, uh, to try, you know, I don't envy anyone trying to budget for 2021. Actually, this is probably going to be a, a major subject at our Auto Finance Summit, uh, October 20 to 22, just how to kind of think about budgeting and forecasting. For 2021, um, another um, uh, another interesting uh, news uh, out of the industry is was uh, some data on uh, e-signature adoption and how it climbed. Uh, it has climbed during COVID. Um, I looked at these numbers, and and boy, those those the, the numbers are yes, they've climbed, but. Boy, they seem really scant compared to broader technology usage uh, data trends. So, w- well, first of all, you know, what's kind of going on there and, and why is this the case?
1: Yeah, so just as an example, so Route 1, which is um, obviously a digital lending platform, um, they have a tool for remote execution of digital contracts. Uh, So for example, during the pandemic, before the pandemic really happened, it was being used for less than 1%. So like maybe half a percentage point of all their e-contracts on that platform. Um, And that was at the beginning of the year. But in April, that shot up to about 5% of contracts were being on the platform were being used with that tool that um, allows for the remote execution uh, digitally. And so that obviously jumped up. It's now settled to about 3%. Um, so they did see a little bit of a spike there um, because of the pandemic. And that's obviously maybe more people now know that's an option. Um, we we're kind of seeing that more and more. You know, they kind of realize that those things are an option to them and that they work well. So a little bit more of uh, an adoption there. Um, but to your point, obviously that's not still a huge number. I think that's something that a lot of lenders still haven't really bought onto yet. I mean, we're we're talking about a few months. So obviously, that's not going to change how things have been done for ever and ever. In a in a few months, for a, a large adoption, but we are starting to see it accelerate a little bit. Like that's just one number. Um, they also saw the number of lenders. Amanda, oh, you're lenders. so
0: glass <laughs> half full. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're just seeing it. We're just just taking the truth. That's you know, just how you roll. Is that in more South are doing
0: it. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, when you look at, I mean, sorry to you know, kind of present this the the alternative view, but when you look at work from home numbers, I, I think the work from home numbers didn't they exceed forty percent of the workforce? Um, you know, at the height, I, I think it was even higher. Um, I, I don't want to say a number I don't know, but it was a significant number, certainly well in excess of 5%. Um, how that number is not, doesn't, you know, isn't, now I don't know whether there's, there are fees associated with that, that digital product or something like that, that has a, that has a, a perhaps a, a, a depressing, you know, that perhaps, a, you know, a tamps down adoption, but I mean, you know, to, there was in in your article, there was somebody said something along the lines of like, you know, this is laying the groundwork for digital transformation. Um, I, I mean, there digital transformation came to financial services about ten years ago. I, I just don't get why um, there is such a a lag here. I mean.
1: Yeah. And people in the industry don't either. (laughs) So to your point, you know, it's really the, you know, I think it comes down to, it's a lot of the legacy, you know, kind of dealerships and lenders and the people who have really like clung to this idea of in person is still, you know, the way to go and, and, you know, digital, they kind of were forced to do a little bit of it during the pandemic. But to your point, I don't think it's, you know, we're not seeing this huge shift right now um where it's mainly the stories really or like you know the trends really that more and more people are kind of seeing that as maybe an option down the road and it might change from you know a 20-year thing to maybe a 10-year thing you know they're they're just seeing it more and more but no i don't think it's going to just switch everything over within the next few months just because the pandemic kind of made them have to do a little more of it um, but we are seeing more and more of this kind of e-sign happening um you know, we saw lenders, more lenders jump on to the Route 1 platform during that. Um, they went to, like, 80 from 28. So that there is, you know, some um, some more adoption happening there. But it's, you know, it's the legacy way of doing things. People don't like to change very much if they don't have to. So you know, <laughs> It'll take a while. I, I
2: wonder, um, and I don't have any, like, hard data. So take this, you know, for what it's worth on, at its face. Um, yeah. But I wonder how much of this is um, – you know, kind of held back by consumer um, preferences, right? Um, Amanda, in in your article, it said you know, the you know there's 80 80 lenders on Root One's platform that have the opportunity or give consumers the opportunity to to digitally sign those contracts, um, which is like 95% of, of e contracts that go through. Um, but y- your conversion rate on actual e sign. E signatures is at um, what five percent? That's what it was. So at the peak. At the peak. So, you know, there the dis and we know lenders are, are have moved to offer this. We know VW Credit has has signed on with CDK Global during the pandemic. Uh, we know Wells Fargo has really pushed their um, e signing capabilities during the pandemic. So I wonder how much this is, um, kind of a gap, either at the dealership level or even the consumer level, like. I'm not comfortable signing, you know, this document for this $50,000 car that I'm about to purchase online. Um, You know, maybe they just want to do that. Maybe they're comfortable, um, you know, going to the dealership just to do that. So that's definitely something I think we need to look into more um, and to figure out like where, where that, where that gap lies and why.
0: I, I do have a theory. Great. Yeah. Hit me. My theory is, is that unlike other financial transactions, let's uh, certainly credit card, but even mortgage to a large degree, um, you got to go pick up the car um, in auto, right? You have to be there. You're there anyway to sign the document digitally, versus to do the closing digitally versus not, you know, maybe it just doesn't have the type of uh, consumer demand or I, I guess transactional market demand mm-hmm. as as there is for um, digital transactions and other channels of financial services. The problem with that is, is that, you know, and, and that's that's sort of to your point, uh, Amanda, of the kind of inertia of it. The problem with that is, is that there are all sorts of costs that get folded into, um, uh, the industry as a result. So even though it's convenient and even though it's, you know, it's the, the, the common practice, the conventional practice, you know, the cost that is, is folded in seems to be, to me to be, uh, Unnecessary at this point in 2020. Um, let's move on. The And let's move on to the CFPB post-election. We are now uh, 30 days out, or at least, I guess, yes, 30 days out from the election. And um, the... Uh, Without getting into who will win, there is obviously one scenario where uh, Joe Biden will become uh, the president. Another scenario, of course, is that uh, the current president remains in office. Um, Under the current president, uh, the volume of investigations at the CFPB dropped dramatically. so it seems clear that when you compare pre-current administration to current administration in terms of CFPB investigations, it doesn't compare. Maybe you'll start by giving us some of those numbers. But the, the question is, to what degree might investigations rise after uh, the election should, the, should uh, uh, Joe Biden become President,
2: yeah, absolutely. So, if, if you look at um, the number of new investigations that um, Kathleen Craninger, the current director of the CFPB, um, undertook in her first year, and Mick Mulvaney's one year, and compare that to Richard Richard Cordray's, um, who four years, first f- four years as as director, um, you know, as you said, it's last 4 years. difference. Uh, Kathleen Craninger K- opened twenty new investigations. Um, in her first year as director, Mick Mulvaney, um, as acting, was 15. That's compared to Cordray, who had, in his four years, 99, 45, 70, and 63. That's new investigations, not ongoing. And these investigations, from start to finish, the goal is about two years, a two-year running time. so. Putting that into context in uh, in the election in a potential Biden administration, we kind of covered this again, but um, in the past. But you know, the expectation is that um, a Biden administration will will result in a change of the director, um, and that investigations will um, ramp up fairly quickly. Um, you know, our source. Said that um, a lot of the employees at the CFPB are still the same people that were there under Richard Cordray, so they are they are ready. I mean, they're they. He was a obviously if you look at those numbers, he was quote a go 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 guy. Um, so you know if if somebody else comes in um, in Craninger's position um, with a change in administration, um, the the thought is that 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 staff at at the CFPB can pivot from the current strategy to a potential new one.
0: What are some of the expected themes for investigation, Joey?
2: So I can tell you um, right now, um, we know for sure that the CFPB and and FTC for that matter is very, very involved in um, ancillary product, um, especially refunds on on GAP products or um, extended service warranties um, when a car is paid off before loan amortizes Mm -hmm. um, whether or not consumers are getting that refund um we'll be looking into something next week not to get ahead of myself um on on some class action relating to that um we also know that um depending on who is uh kind of running the show or which administration is running the show fair lending um will definitely be back on the docket richard cordry was very very big on fair lending disparate impact um And we know under Kraninger and Mulvaney that, that investigations, enforcement action, um, CIDs, or I can't say CIDs, I'm sorry, misspoke. Um, it's, it's all but non-existent as it, as it relates to, to fair lending. So we can definitely expect that to, to be at the forefront.
0: There were a lot of questions around a disparate impact calculation under Cordray. Uh, so we'll see how that has evolved uh with time should that be uh the case um what else do you have planned for this week joey and amanda
2: sure um so as i mentioned we've got uh that we're looking into the class action we're going to see dive into the court case what the complaint is um you know hopefully some lenders are named in there um we'll also (laughs) we want to know who's affected right yeah, um, not hopefully that, you know, there. Yeah, exactly. somebody, yeah, misspoke. Yeah. but meat, mouth. Um, anyways, we're also gonna be taking a closer look at kind of this inventory concern. Um, you know, where is it, where is it the most prevalent? Um, is it leveling off? Is that concern kind of dissipating? Um, so we're gonna dive further into that. And then finally, um, we're gonna have, uh, uh, oh boy, I just forgot.
0: Well, Other things I, uh, to come up. another thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I do know that I, I believe next week there are some lenders that are going to start returning to their offices, so that's uh, kind of an interesting oh, development to watch. Out. Oh, and Joey remembers. Go ahead, Joey. It was
2: important. Um, we're going to be looking at repo volume. Um, we know used car prices are are high, really high, um, and you know we're going to see um, if it if it's starting uh to really um had recoveries. Good.
0: Uh, our yeah. magazine
1: is up if anybody you don't wants to see those stories. Those are up now. So if you haven't right. had have a chance to look at it you this. Released,
0: week. that's the October <laughs> issue, correct? Yeah. It was uh was uh re- was released. So everyone should check that out. The Auto Finance Summit, October twenty to twenty-two, we are in heavy um Uh, pre-conference work on on the summit. There are more than 500 lenders that are now registered uh, for the summit. And uh, I I believe that's the most ever. So we are very much looking forward to an exceptional event. Hope everyone will join us. You can visit autofinancesummit.com. For details. And of course, uh, always visit us at autofinancenews.net um, to get more info. Thanks so much for joining us on the roadmap, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone.